Edwin Frondozo on the Business Leadership Podcast every week for a unique program featuring insights and actionable items from the world's most successful business leaders. Hear firsthand the exclusive interviews and personal journeys on how today's transformational leaders made it to the top. Hey everybody, it's me, it's Edwin, and thank you for joining me for another episode of the Business Leadership Podcast. This is a milestone episode number 25, and we're just getting started. It's been quite an amazing journey since launching the podcast in March, and the reception has been amazing. I'm feeling really blessed for the opportunity to sit down with some amazing business leaders to learn, and more importantly, share from hearing from their leadership stories. Today, I'm excited to share the conversation that I had with Farhan Tawar. He is the CTO and co-founder at Helpful.com. Most recently, he was the CTO mobile at Pivotal and the VP of Engineering at Pivotal Labs. Farhan is best known for scaling Extreme Labs from 10 to 350 employees and building the most popular mobile apps in the world. He is an avid writer, speaker, and was named one of Toronto's 25 most powerful people. We talk about many topics from mobile, AI, machine learning in the enterprise space, paired programming, and some of the leadership myths that are out there. Before getting started, I wanted to thank my media partners, IT World Canada, for the support of the podcast. Now enjoy the show. Farhan, thank you for joining us on the Business Leadership Podcast. You're welcome. So can you maybe just take a minute or or even three, just to introduce yourself to uh, the listeners today. Sure. Hey, so my name is Farhan Thauer. I'm from born and bred in Toronto. Um, I have lived elsewhere, and I'll, okay, maybe I'll go through a little bit of my career history. Um, so went to Waterloo when it was unpopular, I think, uh, in the early tech days. Uh, and from there, went, I did a you know, technical degree, went to the U.S., worked in a company called Trilogy in Austin. Um, had a lot of fun there doing everything from consulting to development to uh, recruiting. Left uh, Trilogy, went to a company in, back to Toronto called Celestica, which was an IBM spinoff. Spent some time there uh, in the engineering uh, architecture group. Lived in Singapore also for them. Uh, set up an offshore development team. Then uh, went to a, another bigger company called Microsoft, which a lot of people know about. Was running MSN Platform and Search. Uh, got the startup bug working at Microsoft, actually. Started interacting in the Toronto community. Started going out to tech events. And went to a startup called Achievers, where I was a CTO there. Um, we kind of, you know, went from the Series A to Series B, left there to join a buddy from Waterloo named Ummer, who started Extreme Labs. Joined, their, joined uh, Extreme Labs, about 10 people. Grew that from about 10 to 350. We got acquired by Pivotal. Had an interesting acquisition there because Pivotal was growing as a software company and is still growing now. Was CTO for mobile at Pivotal. Was also VP of engineering for the Northeast region for Pivotal Labs. And then left uh, in 2015 to start Helpful with Daniel Debo. Awesome. I mean, you've had an amazing career, amazing journey, and, and I'm definitely going to get into that. Um, cool. I'd love to know what you like to do when you're not building, growing, and, and doing these fun projects like cool. on so, the personal side, yeah, I guess. Sure. So, I mean, I'm married, got three kids. So I spent a lot of time with the kids. Uh, we have this ritual now where I, you know, I take uh, my boys to karate on Saturdays, take my daughter down to the ravine, play in the park. So I love playing with the kids, playing soccer. Uh, and then also, you know, at home, I love reading. So I read a lot uh, and also like watching movies. 
Awesome. So those are kind of my, yeah, my go-tos. I love it. I love it. Uh, you just quickly mentioned right now, currently, you're at healthville.com. Mm-hmm. Maybe perhaps if you could share with the listeners what your current role is now and, and perhaps what you're trying to accomplish here on, on your new uh, endeavor. Yeah, sure. So Daniel and I, we, you know, we both had gone through um, acquisitions of our last companies. And in 2015, we decided to team up. Uh, to build a great company in Toronto. And so first and foremost, we wanted to build an amazing place to work where people could um, have a, you know, have a great career. And we thought about different areas in which we had interest. So I've obviously come from the mobile background. I was interested in mobile. And if you think about working, you know, using mobile in a company, it's still a very small percentage of your day. You still, maybe you're doing email on your phone, maybe you're using communications tools, but you're not doing much else. Um, and so we really wanted to think about mobile in the enterprise and whereby, uh, you think about the next set of trends that are coming. It's really around artificial intelligence. So machine learning, artificial intelligence in the enterprise with mobile and, uh, how can we make employees' lives better in the workplace? And we had worked at companies that were growing fast and were large. And it's really hard to know, uh, hard to have a, an impact there and we're using today's tools. And so we wanted to make an impact there. And so that's what we're working on and helpful and still very uh, new and nebulous, but it's really around great technology trends that are happening. We still think mobile is early. Uh, machine learning is still early uh, and applying that to business problems. Well, that's amazing. It sounds like you're on this journey of discovery still. Mm-hmm. I know within the Toronto community, Toronto ecosystem, there's a lot of buzzes around, I guess, projects that you're around and even the helpful brand. So it's great. It's great just to hear that. And and the things that you're working on, even even for myself, mobile that you mentioned is not being used a lot for work. Right. I'm sure it's just being used not to work, right? Is that right. what you see? Yeah, I think that there's a dichotomy between the personal life and the work life, right? And so, you know, there's this great visual which somebody brought up to me by I think a couple of weeks ago where you think about if you look at a video of like somebody in like color and there's they're happy and they're flowers and then they go to work and everything turns to like black and white and they have like a briefcase. And so kind of all the tools you're used to using in your personal life to communicate, to um ha- you know, whether it's buying a you know, a flight or vacation to uh, buying uh, goods to communicating with your friends. And then you go to work and all, and you don't have any of those tools, right? So at work, you can't use, um, most people can't use Amazon to buy the, the things that they want to buy. And they can't use the same uh, Expedia to book their travel at work or, um, and, and the same communication tools. And so I think there's a huge disparity between the consumer world and the enterprise world. And it used to be flipped. It used to be that the enterprise world had better tools than the consumer world. And now it's the opposite. And so our goal is to kind of bridge that gap. Very cool. Very cool. As mentioned, there's some, a lot of cloud around yourself and, and the community that you build around. I mean, you, you're really best known f- from Extreme Labs and you mentioned it. You grew it from 10 employees to 350 building mobile apps, mm-hmm. uh, probably many apps that a lot of people know. So can you share with us some of the most exciting apps? that you were involved with, how the company was, and how the company was able to grow and scale. Yeah, so I think there was a lot of things that we did differently at Extreme that in, like, in hindsight were different, but when we were there, we didn't think of them as, let's not do, we don't, we didn't do them just because they were different. We did them because we thought that, um, it made business sense. So for example, we hired lots of interns. And people, I don't think, uh, don't think about internships as like a value add to their company. I think they typically think about it as like a, like, charity or like it's really good for the community we should hire some interns it'll be great for them like they don't really think about it as a business imperative and it'll make their company better we really looked at internships as 
um, a game changer for the company. And, you know, when I started at Extreme, actually, Amr and I met each other and in class, but also doing internships together. And so when I started there, he said, let's make sure that these co-ops don't have the same experience we had because we went, we had some co-ops that were not uh, amazing. And so you go to an internship and as a, as a intern, you don't really have a lot of cloud or power to kind of change your, uh, you know, environment. Um, so we wanted to make that internship experience so good that people wanted to come back that people wanted to join us full time, that they would talk about us even if they went to their other company. And so I think we fulfilled that goal today. If you had extreme labs on your resume, um, even as an intern, um, you are a sought after employee. And I think that was a big part of uh, why we did some of the crazy things we did there, including like interns and set work hours and no work from home and uh, free breakfast and all these, you know, interesting, um, Things that we thought were better for the company, we uh, they turned into uh, things that we look back on now, saying, "Well, those are crucial to our success." Um, in terms of our client base, like what was interesting about Extreme was that, you know, we were this Toronto company building amazing mobile apps for like you know, Silicon Valley. And so, you know, you can imagine, you know, the, the biggest social network in the world, uh, biggest sports leagues in the world, they were all using Extreme to build their mobile apps. And what started off as just uh, you know, smaller apps in the ecosystem, because we did such a good job on them, because we were um, very fast and high quality, um, we grew almost mostly by referral. So we were a referral business that kept that people kept coming back to us. And the clients that were with us um, had this, you know, they had this concern, they would say to us, I don't want to refer you because I think if I if you keep growing, you're going to do a bad job on my app because um, you won't be able to handle the scale. And year after year, as we grew, you know, 100%, sometimes 200% a year, um, they saw that that was not the case. We were able to grow and continue to keep our quality high and keep our throughput high um, over time. And I think that's what we're most proud of at Extreme. And what came with the the challenges and those opportunities from referrals? I mean, when companies grow, it's sometimes it's a break. It, sometimes it might just break the back. Yeah, and I think I think what we tried to really do was um, make the company uh, allow the company to be as decentralized as possible. And so what that meant was that all of the power would be in like the team that was executing on a project. So you can imagine if you were working on a project for a bank, um, there's no need to have to you know. Um, push every decision up to some leader who you were waiting for our, an approval for, right? Like, I mean, I remember this in other companies where I would go to my manager's uh, office and it'd be like a lineup outside the manager's door and you're waiting for some sort of approval. And so we never wanted that to happen at Extreme. And so what we did was we pushed as many decisions down to the team level as possible and so that there wasn't a time when people were hopefully um, waiting for my approval. And what we did instead was, you know, there's this mantra and we use it here too, it's called trust but verify, which means you trust that the people are doing a good job, but it doesn't mean you can't check in on them. And so what we did was every Thursday, you know, at some point we had like 65 projects running at once where every Thursday I could quickly go through, you know, a list in a, in a one and a half hour or two hour meeting of every project. And so people had time slots. They'd come in for like 15 minutes at a time. And they, I would ask them the same questions. How's, um, you know, how's your project going? How's the code quality? How's your team? Um, when's the next milestone? How does, you know, what's the velocity of the project? So all these questions. And through those questions, we would learn how the project was doing. Then I would take three of those projects deliberately. And I would say, we're going to put those into red status, which meant that I want you to deeper dive. And then on Friday, we'd look at those projects in detail, 20 minutes each. And what was cool about the system was that I ensured that there were always three red projects, meaning I made sure that we did a deep dive on three projects, but I also meant that I stretched the people enough such that there was always like a little bit of a breaking point where a person didn't know if they could handle the assignment or not. And so we promoted people faster than they were probably used to being promoted. We pushed interns into positions where they had real power on a project. 
And that forced kind of two to three projects per week to kind of be at the breaking point where I would have to do a deeper dive, but it made us grow faster. It made people grow into leaders faster. And these, these red projects, um, mm-hmm. did it keep, keep uh the teams guessing who who is going to be labeled red or? yeah i mean it, it was never a good thing <laughs> you never you didn't want to be a red project but the idea behind it was that uh and it was and, and i mean the whole point of it is one we wanted transparency so we asked questions to figure out what was going well and what wasn't going well if we've uncovered something that we missed we would change the questions so the next week there might be a new question that every uh, every team got asked because we learned something about the process and they just so we were never repeating the same mistakes i think that was something that we did well at extreme is that we we made a mistake it's fine but we never repeat the same ones we learned uh and then when you're in red status, you don't want to be in red status two weeks in a row. And so um, on the Friday when we went in that deep dive, you fixed hopefully whatever you need to fix. And we were, I think, pretty transparent. Like I remember a time when there was a product manager who I didn't feel like, so we used this tool called Pivotal Tracker, was in good shape because I would look at the tracker and say, well, it looks like the project's doing well. And he'd say, oh, but not everything's in there or we're not working from that. And I said, okay, number one, let's fix tracker so that it's an accurate reflection of the project. And every day, until the next Friday, I sat with that product manager for like half an hour to an hour and we went through Tracker so that he understood how important it was to keep it up to date. And by the end, the client would, you know, wouldn't, didn't want this product manager to leave. Like he, they, they loved how he had managed that product. So I think it, um, we did a deep dive. I spent time with this product manager. He fixed the issues. And then next Friday, it was not in red status. That's very cool. I know you mentioned many things that, a tribute to the success of Extreme. One thing I want to talk about is paired programming. Mm-hmm. I know it was talked about a lot. It's something, and for those who don't know what paired programming is, it's, yeah. it's when basically you have two developers sitting around one computer. So I understand that you, if you're a huge advocate in that. I think you're building your current helpful.com like mm-hmm. that as well. Yep. So I'd love to know more why you believe in this and why you continue to do it. Yeah. So I think it's a, it's something, it's counterintuitive, right? Like why should we have two people on one machine? And just so for folks know, right, the setup is, is quite comfortable. It's two keyboards, two mice, two monitors, two engineers, but it is one computer. So there's one screen that is the computer and one screen is just a shared screen. So um, both people do have their own screen and keyboard and mouse. Now they can't type at the same time, right? So it's very much like an airport air, air, airline cockpit, right? Where an air, airplane cockpit, where you have two people who can control the plane, but only one at a time. And the idea behind it is that um, one, two heads are better than one. And you're always uh, working together. You're, a- you're questioning assumptions. You're asking questions. Um, what I like about it is that it maintains kind of this intense work environment where both people are working at a very intense pace because they're asking each other questions. The Venn diagram of where they both get stuck is much smaller. So, you know, what most engineers will remember is if you're writing code, it's not the writing code that's the slow part. It's that the stopping, the thinking, the, hey, I'm stuck. I'm looking something up on Google or Stack Overflow. That That's the slow part. And that a lot of that goes away when you have two people because they're probably naturally not going to get stuck on the same things. And so they can unblock each other much more quickly. Um, and I think what's paradoxically amazing is that together you'll work faster than just two of you working separately. And it's because the unblocking uh, happens much less often. You're checking each other, you're asking questions and the understanding of the problem, the shared understanding is much greater than the single understanding. You know, there's a joke that if you have, uh, you know, only five people and you, you can't have pairs because it's odd, right? So you could have two pairs and one person's odd that for that last person, you put like a big stuffed banana beside that person as the pair. And as long as you just keep talking to the banana 
you will actually have um, not the same as pair programming output, but you would have a lot more output because you'll be continually checking and talking through a problem with someone else. And just by talking about it and communicating about it, you'll have a better understanding. And this happens, right? Like, you know, if you go up to somebody and you have a problem and as you start talking, you figure out the answer, right? And it happens all the time. You'll, you'll explain something to somebody and then you'll figure out the answer and you'll say, oh, never mind, I figured it out. It's because you're thinking through it and talking and communicating that leads you to come to the answer. And so the same thing happens with pair programming. Right. And it's not a, people under, people know about it, but um, it is rare to see it in practice. Yeah, I mean, it's astonishing. I mean, I I did go through computer engineering program back in my career. I never I never wrote a code. I do, I do work with coders all the time. But mm-hmm. when I heard the concept of paired programming, right away, it made sense to me. What makes me wonder as someone who's on the sales and the marketing side is it seems very... Ex- not to use the word extreme, <laughs> extreme but, right. but it seems very intense. Like, do, do people ever get into, you know, bumping heads or yeah. how, how do you switch teams around? Like, how does that all really work out? Yeah. So I think what we, so I think there's a, yeah, there, there are tips and techniques to make it be more, more like a smoother experience. So what we do is um, we do switch pairs. Uh, and it's helpful right now. We're switching pairs every three weeks so that people uh, really get to know their pair. They really get to work to get to go deep into what they're uh, working on. And then we switch. Uh, and so you get to work with different people. I found in my career only about 5% of the time is there like a personality or conflict that is, um, based in the personality types. Uh, and in which case you can just switch pairs. So that's easy to remedy. So I don't think it's that complicated. Um, and I think the key about the cool part about pair programming and the switching is that you're learning from so many different people. And so people do want to switch and they want to switch often because they want to learn from different people. And I think that it, it does keep, you know, it's kind of like if you take the the top, the smartest person on your team, you want to spread that around. And then if you have a junior person on your team, you want them to learn from everybody, right? There's all these advantages. Um, and I think that, uh, I wish more people did it. Do you jump in on any of these pairs still? I wish <laughs> when I started at extreme, I was pairing, uh, to start. And then I moved to uh, focus on growth because we were just growing like like crazy. Here, I spend more time thinking about the product, talking to customers, going to customers than I do on the pairing side. Although I try to, you know, as, as much as I can, I try to um, be inside of the engineering. Um, so Pivotal acquired Extreme back in 2013. Mm-hmm. And I guess things were going crazy at the time. Right. I, I'm really curious, how did your leadership style uh, adjust or did, did it have to adjust during that transition? Yeah, I think there's, I mean, the pivot, pivotal acquiring extreme was probably the best thing that could have happened to extreme because it was such an amazing place and we were trying to pivot into a software company. So the best thing that could have happened was to be acquired by a software company. Like that is exactly what we wanted to do. Now, um, what changed? Well, of course, you know, we were running, you know, we had a 350 person company in Toronto. We became part of a 2000 person company based out of San Francisco. So of course, lots of things would change. One, you know, I was almost, you know, while I reported to Ummer, you know, I really felt like we were kind of running our own show. And now we are, um, have to align with like the mothership. Now there's pros and cons, right? The pro is that it's a software company, which is exactly what we wanted to do and move towards that. The con is that we're not running our own show anymore. And so um, I think a lot of things changed. Like one thing that, uh, one direct thing that changed was I used to run not only engineering, QA, design, and product, which is like thought of as the, you know, the product, um, but I used to run HR and finance and recruiting, <laughs> like a bunch of other functions yeah. that um, typically a VP engineering doesn't run, but uh, that I enjoyed uh, working through. So at Pivotal, though, we had central functions for those things. And so right away we had to... Um, 
transition HR into the central HR function, finance to the central finance function, recruiting, right? Um, and so that, those were changes for me. Um, we also, at the time, I think they moved back now, but at the time, engineering was separate from QA, design, and product. And so all of those had to roll up into their respective um, places. So I think you then are allowed to go deeper into one thing. So I only ran engineering after, you know, the transition. And I thought it was quite interesting to um, focus deeply on just the engineering practices and processes. Um, we changed the team structure because Pivotal had a, um, a structure such that you wanted to have one manager for every 10 employees, five uh, managers to every director, those sorts of structures, which we didn't have. So Easing into those types of things and transitioning, I think, was a great experience to go through to see what was what were the pros of that approach versus what we were doing. It was interesting to kind of go through that. And I learned a lot. Yeah. How did you set up your team for success as well during this transition? Because not only I mean, it sounds not only that your role changed and, and you had to transition to other things, but also you had your team that was breaking up as well, it seemed. Mm -hmm. So how, how did you manage their expectations and, and, and was there, were there frustrations in, in that? Yeah, I think, I mean, the cool thing about the acquisition was that Pivotal was such a great, a well-known brand that everyone was up for the challenge of becoming like a pivot, right? So becoming a, a pivot is a, is a strong thing in Silicon Valley, which is like you work for Pivotal Labs or Pivotal and you have a, it's a strong brand that goes behind it. So everybody wanted that brand. And to get that brand, part of it was to work the pivot away. And so it made sense for us to um, try to ease them, everyone into that transition. And so for a lot of people, it actually opened up a lot of leadership opportunities, right? So we didn't have a structure that allowed for lots of managers. We had a structure that was very decentralized and the teams ran everything. But from an HR perspective, we didn't have that many managers. And so having a structure which had a defined ratio allowed us to open up many more manager slots, which allowed people to progress in their careers to say, okay, now you can be a manager. Now, what's interesting about Pivotal was that the manager job is 10% manager, 90% um, like team member. And so that is a great way to lead into like some of the management things that you have to think about. Um, so I think that that was a positive. Now, were there people who felt that it wasn't a good change? Sure. I mean, that's going to happen in any type of acquisition. Like a lot of things changed, right? One was we used to be headquartered in Toronto. Now it's headquartered in San Francisco. Another was we used to take on certain types of projects. Now we're taking on other types of projects that, that help with the software sales. So there's all kinds of things that will change. And so you're going to see that in any type of acquisition. Um, but I think net-net, it was a positive for everyone. Um, and to have that brand behind them now, wherever they go the rest of their lives and their career, it, um, is great to have that in the resume. Oh, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. You, re you recently spoke at the HR Tech Summit. Mm -hmm. um, you shared thoughts on AI, specifically how it can be utilized for talent selection, how it could impact future jobs. Um, I wasn't there. So can you share with us some of the key points and the takeaways that you had? Yeah. So I think what's amazing, and again, this is the same theme that we kind of started off with, which is what's going to happen to the workplace, right? And um, the reason I actually partnered with Daniel was that he has this view of the world that I, ca I call it, I call it unreasonable. He has the unreasonable view of the world, which is that, you know, why don't these things already exist? today in the world and specifically why don't they exist in in the enterprise and i think it's no um it could be no surprise to anybody that machine learning artificial intelligence is coming to work so what does that mean and uh, it's coming to work in various ways right so on the panel with me um, there was a company that uses artificial intelligence to actually filter applicants 
from the resumes, right? So resumes come in, the AI helps filter and says, you should talk to these three people, which is amazing because potentially has the uh, ability to uh, remove bias, right? If trained correctly. Now, if you train it with some, if you train it with the human and the human has the bias, then the AI has the bias as well. So that's not going to help. But maybe there are ways for us to uncover unconscious bias and train the AI such that it doesn't have that same bias. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, um, we talked, so we talked about AI on the recruiting side. We talked about AI in HR. So imagine you can um, field questions from your employees in a much more effective way. Because if you ask anybody in the HR function, likely also the finance function, they get asked the same question over and over. So does that question have to be answered by um, a person or can it be answered by an artificial agent who's heard that question many times, can point you to the right, right uh, up-to-date information and re- resolve your request? And then only for the specialized, detailed questions should those go to humans. I think everybody wants to move up the ladder, right? If you're somebody who works in HR and gets asked the same 20 questions every week, right? I don't think those people are thinking about like, oh, I'm going to lose my job. I think they should be thinking about how do I move up the chain to answer more value-added questions and let you know, some bot or some automated agent answer those 20 questions for people. That's right. And I guess from your role in Extreme, you know, probably those 20 questions in HR as well. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, yeah. And I, I mean, like I said, I ran HR, but I think we were, so back then we were not thinking about things like that. We were not thinking about, we of course tried to automate things as much as possible. Maybe, maybe in the old days you'd say, oh, well, I'm just going to have an FAQ. Right. Right. I'll put up an FAQ that answers the questions that I get asked often. Today, the thinking is more about, can I create an artificial agent so that if somebody asks the question, we automatically give them the answer? There was something interesting, uh, before, before we met today. We, we wanted, to, I wanted, I really wanted to ask you about some business traits. Okay. And really you brought up maybe let's talk about some of the business leader myths. Okay. Uh, that you probably follow or, or, or don't agree with. Uh, okay. Could you share what you, what you had in mind there? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think there's, I mean, I have a long list. I think there's like 50 or 60 things that I think I've just seen in many companies and um, I don't necessarily agree with, or I don't, I don't just take them wholesale. So meaning if someone said to me, um, you know, one example is uh, recruiting, right? I, I've talked about this before where, you know, you must interview candidates, uh, you know, many times and make sure you have the right person before you bring them to your organization. And I just heard that. Um, often. And I said, well, why is that true? Why do, why isn't, is, is an interview a really good predictor of performance later on? Or is it that you're trying to figure out culture and they have like the thing called like the beer test? Would you go for beer with this person? Or they have all these different, uh, tests. And I think that there are, it's great to think about things in a money ball sort of way, which is like, are there shortcuts I can use to help me determine if, if something's going to work before I do it? I think that's great to think about. But there's a flawed, understanding whereby people just say, you must do it this way because it's always been done that way. And I've actually heard that before. I've actually asked somebody something like, why are you doing that? And they said, oh, we've always done it this way. And I actually heard that. And I was super surprised. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like that, it's like right out of like, like the movies. Like we just, <laughs> like you don't just say we do it because we've always done it. You should ask, why do we do it that way? And I think that actually, so, you know, going back a little bit to pair programming is that's a great thing about pair programming is that even if you do something and, and somebody says, why are you doing it? If you just say, because I've always been doing it that way. That's not a good answer. You can't teach somebody like that. You have to ask, say, well, it's because there's this, you know, it's, it's better and somebody could question you. On the that. theory. The theory. Well, the theory and even the practice. Right. Hey, I don't have to know that there's theory. I mean, um, I just have to know that um, I've tried it the other way. I'm not trying it this way and it worked better. Um, and so I think that, you know, there's a lot of those myths that people just take wholesale and they don't question them. And I think there's, there's value in sometimes not questioning because you might just say, look, my business is already risky enough as it is. I'm just going to take what Google does and copy it. 
it's great. I think that's fine. But I think you should always be looking at and understanding why did Google do it that way, right? So if you said, for instance, I'm going to do 20% time every Friday, which is what Google does, right? And without understanding why they do it and what you're trying to achieve, then I think that all of the intentions behind it are not going to make you successful. Instead, you should say, oh, why did Google do it? Oh, Google does it because they're actually trying to make their engineers feel like they can work on something on their own, which contributes to their other projects. Maybe they're trying to find new avenues for new projects. Like, let's figure out why they're doing it and let's figure out for us. Does it make sense to do 20% time, meaning every Friday? Or maybe you want to have a hackathon week once a month. Maybe you want to do one day a month. Like, there's, there's, a, there's a, Think about the reason and then move from the reason to figuring out what works for your company. So I'm a big fan of like asking lots of questions about why people do things um, and then figuring out what's right for me. And guess what? Even though I'm here at Helpful and I was also at Extreme, the same things don't work in both companies because they're different companies, they're different people, it's a different product, it's a different time. Um, and uh, just because it worked in company A doesn't mean it's going to work in company B. And we've seen that already. No, 100%. So... I know you're currently reading our, and maybe you just finished it, The Undoing Project. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd love to learn about that book. What are your key takeaways from it? Or what are you learning from it? Yeah, so I finished it. Um, it's an excellent book. And it actually started off with, I was reading, I've read a bunch of Michael Lewis books. But uh, I also recently read Thinking Fast and Slow from Danny Kahneman. And uh, it's a great book on biases, all sorts of biases that the human mind um when it, it makes in, it makes incorrect uh, incorrect estimates about things, uh, incorrect judgments, and the Undoing Project is is a it's kind of like a, not a superset, but it's a different take on the same story whereby um, Michael Lewis talks about talks to Danny Kahneman and talks to relatives of Amos Tversky and tries to and, and basically goes through their friendship. And, um, over time and how they got to coming up with all these amazing insights, right? Danny Kahneman ended up winning the Nobel Prize. And what's amazing about it is just the juxtaposition of the two types of um, people that they were. One was outgoing and gregarious. The other was shy and introverted. But together, right, there's a great quote. I don't think it was actually in the book, but it was in an interview. I watched Michael Lewis uh, do talking about the book and where he said, Danny Kahneman said, alone, we're okay, but together we're a genius. Right. And it's, and it's how I think about pair programming. Right. And the idea behind it is that, you know, they were both super smart in their own way, but together they came, they were able to question each other's ideas, spend a lot of time together and come up with, uh, you know, all these amazing theories about decision making and bias. Uh, I think it's a great read. I think it's a great read for anybody. It, it, there is, there is a lot of overlap with thinking fast and slow, but. It's enjoyable because it's such an interesting subject. So if you were to choose one of the one of the two, one of the books, two, oh, it's a probably tough one. <laughs> probably thinking fast and slow. Okay. Yeah, okay. I think. I mean, it's so good that it and it goes through all the all the um, biases and detail that I think it's a it's a it's a must read for everybody. Cool. Thank you for sharing that. You list Bill Gates, Nassim Taleb, mm -hmm. and Danny Kahneman. Yeah, the same guy. <laughs> and as business leaders, as your business leader uh, influences. So I'm really curious to know, I mean, outside of the books, what mm -hmm. you see in them that you want to emulate as well. Yeah. I mean, I've always been a fan of Bill Gates and maybe because of my generation, right? My generation, I went to university in the 90s. Microsoft was the, the you know, the big behemoth driving force. And I think a lot of it was around, and I worked at Microsoft too, right? So I think a lot of it was around just how intense and focused Bill Gates was on certain problems at certain times, right? Um, now he's very much known for all this philanthropy, but um, back then everyone was scared of like the Microsoft A-team, right? If the A-team 
figured out if you if, if there was a problem you were working on and Microsoft put their A team on solving that problem, right, you were dead because they were gonna they were gonna do a better job than you were. Right. Whether that was you know, in the old days, right, it was like word processing and they came out with Word and then they came out with Excel to kill Lotus 1, 2, 3 to like uh, Internet Explorer killing Netscape. Like they literally would just target this cannon at um, a problem and they would solve it and they would do it better than anybody else. And I think that um, it was always exciting to me to think about this like a team that can kind of think about a problem and, and, and uh, write software to solve it. And so, you know, I kind of grew up with that. And so I've always been a fan of Bill Gates. Uh, Nassim Taleb is quite different. He's just, he's just a big questioner. He questions everything. And same with Danny Kahneman. Like they both just ask lots of questions. Actually, um, Nassim Taleb was being interviewed in the New York Public Library and they asked him who should interview him. And he said, only one, one person, Danny Kahneman. Very <laughs> so, cool. Yeah, it's very cool. It's, and you can watch the video, but it's just that they both ask lots of questions and they, they don't take anything at face value. And I think I try to do that, right? Like one of my favorite quotes is everything you know is wrong. Like I'm always trying to think like, what's the real motivation? behind why we're doing something or why someone's doing something or if I look at something I try to understand it um, from like a beginner's mind and so that's I've always liked their 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 way of thinking that's cool so real fun question love to ask uh, mm-hmm. all my guests here is, is if I were to ask anyone in your team yeah what the best leadership quality you have or you possess what do you think they would say I don't know I think um they might say that I I my superpower or like, you know, the, one of the powers that I have is that I don't mind looking stupid, right? Like I, I really, I'm, I'm, I've never been embarrassed by like asking the dumb question or looking dumb in front of someone else. Or even if, even if, you know, someone asks me something that I should know uh, and I don't know, I'd rather just say, I don't know that, right? Like instead of trying to um, BS or get around it, I'd rather, I'd rather look embarrassed and be like, you know what? You're right. I should know that, but I don't. Um, like what is the answer or I'll go and find, or I can find out for you. So I think that from that perspective, I think that that's a way to, you know, approach everything with a beginner's mind and not be, um, concerned that I'm going to look dumb. Well, that's cool. One thing I heard, um, past guest that I had here was Mitch Seguin. I know, I know you, uh, you know him very well. He mentioned one thing he learned from you and this is how I'm really happy the opportunity to sit down with you is he, mm. what he saw from you or what he learned from you is the fact that you would actually there was no problem too big. You would come down and you would sit down with a programmer, or developer, whether how busy you were, you'd always make time for them and make sure that it's all about them and the employees and the, your, your developers. It's, it's what right. you did. So that, that would, that's interesting to show that how you, your point of view as well. So thank cool. you. Thank you for sharing that. So what's next for Farhan? I know you're, you're building a great company in Toronto, mm-hmm. but where do you see yourself going perhaps with the business or any other endeavors as well? Yeah. So I always, I mean, the way I think about the future is always the following. Like it's hard to plan. Like planning is useful, but I'll say the plan is useful, useless, right? Like the planning is useful to think about, am I setting myself up for, um, spending time on the right things? And the way I always think about it is it's the same questions I ask anybody who's looking for a new job. Like people always ask me, I get a lot of questions about how do I, should I leave my current job? How do I pick a job that I have like three offers? How do I pick which one to go to? And I always say the same thing. I said, you should ask yourself three questions. Where, you know, where are the smartest people that I know? Where can I learn the most? And where can I have the most impact? And, you know, if I think about where I am today, am I working with the smartest people I know? Yes. Am I learning a ton? Yes. And am I having impact? I think so. Um, then I'm in the right spot. And so that's all you can ask for is like, are, are those things still true? And, you know, periodically, everyone should be asking themselves those questions. And if those things are still true, they're probably in the right place. 
That's wicked. Thank you for sharing that. But before we end, mm-hmm. love to get some of your final thoughts, observations, any actionable recommendations that you could share with the future business leaders, technology leaders who are looking to grow your career. I mean, outside those amazing three questions that you just asked, yeah. you just shared. Yeah, I think yeah. One, yeah, ask yourself those questions. Um, I think that you know, there's another uh, interesting uh, you know thought experiment, which is. Put yourself in uh, in a position where you know. Let's say you, you you just sold a company. It doesn't matter where you are. And let's say you just or you won the lottery, okay? And you won the lottery and you won, you know, let's say fifty million dollars. It's like lo- enough money that you're like you don't have to work anymore. What would you do with your time? Right? Like it's a great thought experiment. Like sit down and be like, well, maybe you know the first weeks or whatever you buy a bunch of stuff because you're like, okay, I'm, I'm rich. Um, <laughs> but after that, like, what are you what are you gonna do? And I think it's a great thought experiment because you really have to sit down and be like. Okay, do I want to, you know, for instance, I, I thought about this recently. I'm like, oh, would I just, like, would I go teach? I've always loved teaching. So maybe I go become a teacher. Or would I go back to school and learn and, and get into a new field? Would I homeschool my kids? Like, there's a whole bunch of, like, interesting, would I travel with my whole family around the world to, like, explore different cultures? Like, what would we do? And I think it's a great thought experiment because the second part of that question is, well, why are you not doing that now? Right. And it's not the money. It's usually something else. You can always figure out a way to like, whether it's traveling around. I know lots of people who like now travel around the world with their kids and they work remotely and they're able to do those things. Or they have become teachers because that's what they wanted to do. And they realized that it wasn't about the high paying corporate job, but, but teaching is actually much more fulfilling and uh, they enjoy that. So I think that, you know, the first part is a good thought exercise for anybody. But then the second part is like, well, why are you not doing that? And I think, and that's exactly why I started a company. I said, well, what, you know, I'm, I'm not, the the motivation wasn't money. The motivation was how do I end up spending a lot of time with smart people, learning a lot, and then trying to make an impact somewhere. That's really cool. So to close, Farhan, please tell us where we could find more information about you, helpful, and, and perhaps any other thought projects that are deep thoughts that uh, you'd like to share with, uh, sure. with the listeners. Well, I mean, one, I'm on Twitter. So FN Thauer on Twitter, um, www.helpful.com. And you can see how Helpful evolves as we, as we figure out um, the types of problems we want to spend our time on. Those are probably the two easiest places to, to find me online. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Farhan, for taking the time to join us on the Business Leadership Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for coming. That's it, folks. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate it. Such a great conversation with Farhan. I feel fortunate to sit down with him to learn a bit more about growing a technology and software company. It was great to hear the three questions he left us with. Questions that we need to be asking ourselves periodically, which were, where are the smartest people that I know? Where can I learn from the most? And where can I make the most impact? To learn more about Farhan, Helpful, any other resources that he mentioned, please go to the Business Leadership dot com slash zero two five i would love to hear from you feel free to reach out directly via email to edwin at the business leadership.com it's great to hear from you so feel free to reach out anytime if you haven't done so yet please subscribe on itunes google or wherever you listen to your podcasts thank you again and until next time edwin signing off Thank you for listening to the Business Leadership Podcast at thebusinessleadership.com.